0: I want to start with a little story. I grew up in the South, and I would say Sunday was the most segregated day of the week. And uh, let's see, to say it mildly, at least at least in my hometown, tradition outweighed the move of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Southern Baptists and the Methodists, whom whom I love, we were we were Southern Baptists until I was sixteen. And then we became associated with Assemblies of God. Uh, This new church came into town. And it was very, very small. And it began to meet in a storefront. This is the early 90s, something like that. And you would think that the local churches would welcome this new church in. But instead, they looked at this new church and they said, what's going on there? There's interracial couples that are being there. There's uh, prostitutes who are coming to this church. There are uh, drug addicts who are coming to this church. There's homosexuals. So they kind of like pointed at this church and was like, you know, who's this redheaded stepchild? They're doing more harm than good. But this little church kept meeting and they embraced the Holy Spirit and miracles started taking place. And before you knew it, today, that church is the largest church in my hometown. And that pastor, that senior pastor, is one of the most tenured senior pastors in my hometown. My point is that a small church, look at the disciples. The disciples changed the entire world, just 12 people. A small church embracing the Holy Spirit, the move of the Holy Spirit, what's God doing, embracing that, can change an entire area. That's just a quick story. Keep that in mind as, as every Sunday you guys come to church that it's possible for any size church to change an entire area. Being faithful and embracing the Holy Spirit. Lord, just put that story in my heart as we were singing and worshiping to so praise God. If you don't know me, my name is Luke Glover. Um, my wife and I, Lena, is right here, and two of our team members, Marty and Justin. We're planning a church in North Portland. It's uh, based out of our house, and um, we actually just soft-launched recently, and I, I brought a picture to show you. Uh, it's a church that's heavenly Im- embedded in the local neighborhood. It's called City, City Vineyard. Now, in the midst of church planning, we have four kids, to 17, 15, 12, 11, and actually, before I was... Getting ready to get up here, I couldn't read very much because one of our sons had broken the screen on this <laughs> iPad and there's fingerprints on it. I think the dog licked it too, so I went into the kitchen and kind of wiped, wiped it all off. Here we are in our living room, worshiping God. Uh, historically, the neighborhood has been one of the worst places in, in inner city Portland. But lately, it's been labeled one of the most affordable places. So obviously with that comes a lot of gentrification, a lot of people moving into the neighborhood. We've lived there for, for 11 years. We had no intention of planting whatsoever. I was completely against, frankly, I'd given up on church because I saw such an ineffective church. But the vineyard in its casualness, and if, you, and if you guys know Steve Fish, is a very persuasive person in his mild manner. We met with him for coffee one time and, and we were telling him all of our passions and, and all of our desires for the Lord, to see the Lord. And um, we wanted to know if there was a small group that met in North Portland. And he's like, no, no. You ever thought about church planning? And so uh, I said, not really. You know, I don't, I begrudgingly go to church. And he said, well, I just want you to pray about it and think about it. That was almost three years ago. And through the love of Vancouver Vineyard and the formation and the encouragement, we indeed did plant a church. We're small, but we're growing, and the Lord is blessing it. Uh, I'm amazed at the move of God when we, our hearts are open. When we first moved to that neighborhood, we'd wake up and there'd be like homeless people in our lawn. Uh, we'd have, like, uh, I think a couple times uh, meth heads would come on our porch. we have a big, huge porch. And you'd wake up, and there'd be a guy sitting on your front porch. And uh, I'm not a very timid guy, so you could imagine me going outside and kind of maybe giving him a piece of my mind, but also, you know, trying to minister to him. Actually, a few weeks ago, the neighborhood is completely transitioning, but a few weeks ago, we were actually robbed. Uh, while we slept, we have eight people who live with us. Uh, us, Glovers, who are six people, and then two single people who live with us. While we slept, and we have a dog too, big, huge, fat, black lab, uh, someone broke into our house through the basement, stole a bunch of tools, came upstairs, and our bedroom is like, that would be our bedroom. Here's our living room. They came into our living room as we slept, and stole TVs, uh, kids' backpacks, some M&Ms off the counter, peanut M&Ms, which are my favorite. So, uh, needless to say, the neighborhood's transitioning, but there's a lot of still sketchiness that's there. Uh, someone in our church actually said, the Lord put you guys to sleep, because I'm a light, super light sleeper, and I'm often getting up in the middle of the night to go to the restroom, that sort of thing. I didn't hear anything. I didn't get up to go to the restroom that night. So it was a miracle of God that we were asleep and didn't confront these people. Because if there did, there would be conflict, obviously, and uh, not a pretty sight. And it was actually, what, a week before launch? So if something big and something bad had happened, it would have postponed the launch. And so we believe that, that God caused a miracle in that there wasn't a confrontation because it was pretty quick. Here's here's another story that I told at our uh, sending party. Just to give you an idea of the neighborhood, uh, we had an engagement party one time at our house, and uh, the guy's mom was in a wheelchair. She couldn't come up our stairs. And so we took the party outside. It was on our porch, spilling out on our porch, and we were, it was probably like 8 or 9 o'clock, something like that, and we were doing honorings, toasts. We were toasting this couple in their engagement, and it had just gotten dark. And people were clapping. We were finishing up, you know, raising a toast. And out of the darkness, I hear this voice. And this voice says, happy, happy, happy. No more laughing. And so I was like, oh, that's really weird. What is that, you know? Um, no more clapping. So we finished up, and people were milling around and outside and going inside, and some people were leaving. And I'm standing on the porch. I, I look over, and I see this neighbor, come running out of her house. And she's barreling straight forward. I know, oh Lord, here we go. It's going to be a conflict. I just said a quick prayer. I said, Lord, help us. (laughs) That's all you can do in those moments. But she got my face. Justin was there. A few other guys were there. And she says, I know what you guys are up to. I know you're trying to to, what did she say, trying to proselytize this neighborhood? I know you're trying to, you know, do this, that, and the other. And she goes, I, you, you're nothing. Someone tried to offer her cake, and she was, I don't want any cake. I don't. I hate cake. So we're trying to be nice, you know, and, and the only thing I could say, the only thing that was in my mind was, God loves you. And I left it at that. That's all it that came out of my mouth. And all of a sudden, she began to weep. She just started crying. And she said, um, she started hugging us. And I said, can we pray with you? Just, you know, can we pray with you? Her name is Karen. And we began to pray with her, and she just like crumbled under the weight of the Holy Spirit. And she said, her tune completely changed from this confrontational uh, person To a person who was open, she began to hug our necks, me and the other guys, and said, you are our friends. You are my friend, and I love you guys. So what does it look like when the body of Christ moves into a neighborhood? We believe that your block, your workplace, your grocery store should be different because you're there. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. That is your mission field. We are a sent people. Now, I wish I would have followed up with Karen and shared more about Christ. But I didn't. But there's always another opportunity tomorrow. Anyways, from what Glenn's told me, it sounds like you guys are in the middle of Ephesians. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, a lot of people see Ephesians 2 as like this you know, saved by grace. And that's a wonderful thing. It's very integral to our faith that you're you're saved by grace and not by works. But a lot of pastors, a lot of speakers boil down Ephesians 2 to that simple phrase or that simple concept. But there's a lot hidden in Ephesians 2. Grace is super important but I want to talk about something even deeper. It's actually three things. Um, By the way, I'm not a, a Bible scholar or anything like that. I have zero credentials. I'm just a guy who loves God and loves to see people transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I would say I operate more in the apostolic gifting. So you're going to see some of that come through as we step into Ephesians 2 and discover what God wants to say to us. I'm not a teacher, so I... You know, I'm not going to know the background that well. Um, All I know is that it's a letter to a church in Ephesus who is going through some trouble. And Paul, the ever-apostolic pastor, writes a pastoral letter to these folks to help them identify who they really are. And that's what this letter is about. It's about letting you know who you really are. Not what the evil one tells you, right? Not what the world tells you you are, but who God tells you you are and how he sees you. So there's three things we're going to talk about in Ephesians 2. And then we'll step into it. And there's one, those of you who have faith in Christ are in unity with Christ. Essentially, we have a new nature because we're in unity with Christ. Two, those of us who have unity in Christ are also in unity with each other. And then three, if you have unity with Christ and you have unity with one another, it is meant to live a radical life in this new identity. I think sometimes we lose, the, lose the, how radical a life we're meant to live. We're meant to live a life so radically different that the world looks at us and says, who are these new people? One of my favorite theologians is Leslie Newbigin, and he writes about miracles that Jesus did and the way that the disciples lived. It caused the crowds to ask this question, what is this new kingdom that Jesus is talking about? Because it's on display. He feeds the 5,000 and people are like, what is this? And then he says, this is the kingdom of God. This is the real kingdom of God, and it's at hand. We're meant to live an animated and awakened, new, empowered by the Holy Spirit kind of life so that we can do miraculous acts of love that we could not do on our own. This is what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2. He's telling the church in Ephesus that they are to live a new life. Again, not conformed to the patterns of the world, but made new because Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to empower the church. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Ephesians 2. If you don't, then pull up your app, something. If you don't have it, then I'll read loudly. It's okay. We'll step through this in a few minutes. Again, Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. As for, and again, Paul is speaking to an entire church. And some historians say that people, when they get his letters, his pastoral letters, they would stand up and read it among the assembly uh, as they gathered. So could you imagine a letter arriving? People are really excited about this letter from Paul. This person brings it to the assembly. He stands up in the middle of the assembly, and he reads this. So I'm going to act it out a little bit now. Again, beginning in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So your old way led to disobedience. But now you're going to be awakened. All of us, again in verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that we have been saved. The great Protestant banner. It is by grace that we have been saved. And again, that's super important, but there's a lot more in here in this letter that tells us who we are and how we're supposed to be. And I love the next verse. This is one of my favorites. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. This means that you've been raised up with Jesus and you're seated with Jesus. Where's Jesus? He's at the right hand of the Father. It's a very interesting concept that we we have died, our old selves died with Jesus, was buried and raised again with Jesus and we're seated right next to him in the glory next to the Father. You see what Paul did there? He knew... uh, in his great prose, how to use the same verbiage, the same concepts that Jesus used. Uh, Really quick, look over to John 14. This is what Paul is talking about. And again, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and Paul's picking up the same theme here. 14 verse 1 says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. Now, you know, historians and theologians question whether he's talking about the end of age or is he actually talking about in the spirit? coming and taking us and seating us right next to him with the Father. Our spirits are there. And then you see this dialogue between him and his his disciples. I feel like the disciples never really get what Jesus is talking about. You know, um, they seem, of course, this is a ragtag group of people. They weren't exactly educated, these were just regular guys, so I'd probably be confused too. Skip down to verse 20 of John 14, 20. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. It's this notion of being in union with Jesus as Jesus is in union with the Father. Jesus is unified with the Father, and we are unified with Jesus. Again, where did Jesus go? His spirit, to the right hand of the Father. Where has he seated us? With him. Now, go back to Ephesians 2. Sorry, we're going back and forth here. But, Glenn, I hope I promise I'm going to stick to the script, if you're listening to this. Cool thing about Glenn being gone is I can kind of say what I want to say and then hightail it to North Portland, and he'll have to listen to the recording. You have to come find me in North Portland, but that's okay. Paul's confirming for the Ephesian church what Jesus said in John fourteen, that we are unified with Jesus. that our spirits are communing with Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying. I love what uh, Wayne Grudem, if you've ever uh, seen any of his writings or his book, which is a massive book. One of my sons loves to just read it. It's about this big. It's called Systematic Theology. Uh, He loves, it's bedtime reading for him. He's kind of weird like that. Uh, This is what Wayne Grudem says. We can think not only in terms of Christ's past work of redemption, but also in terms of his present life in heaven and his continuing possession of all the spiritual resources. We need to live the Christian life. Since every spiritual blessing was earned by him and belongs to him, the New Testament can say that these blessings are in him. Thus, they are available only to those who are in Christ. So we have something very specific and something unique that the world does not have. And that is, Jesus went, got the blessings, opened up heaven, and allowed us to experience the blessings of being unified to him. That the world does not have that. And if we are in Christ, then these blessings are ours. Jesus opened up the floodgates of heaven by uniting us to him. All of the union that Jesus experienced with the Father is available to you through Jesus. All the blessings that Jesus captured is available and on offer to us. You were once born into the sinful nature of Adam, but through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and union, you now have a nature in Christ. So this is the concept that he's talking about in Ephesians 2. He's referencing back to John 14. He's saying there's this union that's taking place between the believers and Jesus. In fact, we're putting on a new nature. We used to have the sinful nature, Right? But now we have this new nature called Jesus. This is how God sees you, the Father. He sees you with this new nature. Not with the old nature, but with the new nature. You are united in Christ. Now, this concept of union goes way back in uh, Hebraic uh, tradition. It's called Yachid. And it's... um, this notion of being communing with the Spirit, with the Father, Yahweh. In Greek, it's called uh, heis, which is E H E It is this oneness that makes us come alive as a different kind of human. You ever seen those sci-fi movies where they try to create superhumans or robots or something like that, and they try to take over the world? And they have special special gifts, and they can, you know, superhuman strength and all this kind of stuff. It almost sounds a little bit like that, right? So you have this old nature that you're giving up and letting die, and you're taking on this new nature, and all the blessings, all the gifts that come with that. Think of like words of knowledge. Think of like, you know, speaking in other languages and uh, uh, acts of mercy and love when you're a real nature, you want to, you really actually want to punch them in the face, but you know, all of a sudden you feel this way of mercy and love. That's the Holy Spirit communing inside of you, developing this new nature. Is this making sense? It's this new nature that allows you to do things that wouldn't normally be able to do through regular human means. Now, again, we are unified in Christ. And if that wasn't enough, Paul continues on in verse 11 where he says, Therefore, remember that formerly you are, who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves a the circumcision, which was done by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. And you were without hope, And you were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made the two one. He has destroyed the barriers that divide us. The dividing wall of the hostility. So you're united in Christ and now God is taking through Jesus many people and making one people. It's this notion of yachid or haste. Actually, it's an interesting concept. The consummation room in Hebraic culture is called the yachid room. It's where the two two husband and wife become one flesh. They really believe that when you get married, you become one flesh. And so this isn't some far-off concept uh, to Jews. This is a real concept of becoming one with the Father. Jesus was the only one, or at least the first one, to be able to do it. Jesus was truly in union with the Father, and he made a way for us to be unified with the Father through him. And get ready, verse 15. He sums it up. He sums up this concept right here. By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. We just sang it. You don't have to earn it. It's on offer, free of charge to you. But it's gonna cost you everything. Because you're gonna let go of that old nature, take on this new nature, be unified with Jesus and unified with each other. Verse 15 By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two. Thus, making peace in and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So, in other words, you're unified with Christ, you're unified with each other completely, creating a new kind of human. Animated with the Holy Spirit. There it is again. God is taking something fragmented and separate and making us haste. The Greek term oneness. How many know that most of the criticism of the church comes from other Christians? Let's be honest. I can You can think of a bunch of instances where uh, people in the church have basically condemned other Christians. You may not agree with what they said. You may not agree with their style or anything like that, but we have to approach each other with love. You can think of like Eugene Peterson. And again, you know, I don't necessarily read all these people. Joel Olstein. I don't want to appreciate necessarily his style. That's just my preference. But there was a condemnation that took place almost immediately, mostly from other Christians. There's a whole section of Christianity, I would say, who thinks its job is to lurk around in the shadows, waiting to point out everyone else's errors, instead of looking at what God's doing in the world and participating in that. I don't see that in any of Jesus' teachings. He said, beware, be on guard for false teachers, right? But don't go around lurking, looking for ways to point out other people's problems, other people's shortcomings. I'm not saying you shouldn't call a spade a spade. I was recently, well, a couple, maybe a year or so ago, uh, flip it, we, we used to have a TV before we got robbed, and, uh, Flipping through channels, and we don't have cable, so I came across this one channel, and there was this huge conference, like thousands of people in this massive stadium. And I think it was like Hillsong or something, and um, I was just beginning to talk to the Lord, and I said, "Lord, why, why are you know, why are we spending millions of dollars on this thing? You know, you know pyrotechnics, explosions, smoke machines, lights going everywhere." I'm like, Lord, this is way too much. They could sell all that and, you know, help the poor or something. And I heard this voice that come to me, and it was his voice, and he said, if one person discovered me, it was worth it. So that's the whole notion of leaving the 99, going and finding that one, throwing it on its shoulders and saying, I found the lost one. We serve a very wealthy father who's willing to go and do anything to find the lost. Anything. Anyways, we're so quick to condemn our brothers and sisters. We seem to show more love to the world than our own tribe. I really think we need to give each other a lot of grace. How can we expect to win the world when we're against each other? And there's a lot of division I think in the body of Christ. So to recap your your haste with Jesus and your haste with one another. Alan Hirsch, if you have read any of his material, he calls a local community, um he calls it uh, limitation, that we are, if a true community lives together in this new life, we are limited by the person who is most limited. because we're in each other's life so much that we don't leave each other behind. And I would I would love to see City Vineyard something like that, where we, we throw our lot in together, and uh, none of us are running out far ahead, whether it's wealth or material possessions or anything like that, and leave other people behind. The body of Christ was so unified, the early church, that they sold their possessions, and none of them were hungry among each other. Scripture tells us in Acts. And if that wasn't enough, Paul continues on. He could have left it right there and called it quits. That's massive theological ramifications for people's lives. your your haste with Jesus. You're chud you with Jesus. And you're chud you with each other. But no, he continues on. That was some heavy stuff, brother. But he continues on. And he drives the point further. In verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And verse 22, And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. You see, the Christian life was meant to be a radical example of the life in Yechud with Jesus and with one another in display for the world. It is to live a life that people ask the question, who are these people? The early Christians lived such a radical life that they were deemed a threat to the the Roman Empire. These were the people that called slaves brothers and treated women as equals, called them sisters. These are the people who shared their table with the outcasts. Historian Rodney Stark, who has an awesome book called The Rise of Christianity, it's an amazing book. You know, uh, forever historians thought or theorized that Christianity rose on persecution. And that's a common conception. But he suggests, through his analysis, that it was actually because of plagues. Because in Roman society, there was a massive divide between the wealthy and the poor, And uh, when plagues began to sweep through Rome, the wealthy would leave the cities and go to their country estate or just leave. They wouldn't, you know, they would leave the poor behind. But instead, the Christians ran into the city. They had this view of heaven, right? And that uh, when they died, they would go to heaven. And so they had this idea of paradise, but they also had this benevolence about them and so they ran into the city and cared for the sick, cared for the poor. Some of them actually caught the plague and died themselves. And he suggests that after the plague was over, the wealthy would come back into the city and see that these Christians had been taking over. And that's when persecution ensued. The political politically connected saw that the Christians were the ones left and that's when they began to persecute them. So there was these, it's a graph You could see it, little hills. One was the plague. One was this uh, rise in Christianity numbers and then rise in persecution. And so it's an interesting study to think that it was actually the plagues that uh, encouraged membership in Christianity and conversion. It isn't enough to put a fish sticker on your car and call it good. Trust me, I'm guilty of that. It's not enough to go to a coffee shop reading a Bible and hoping someone notices. I've done that too. It's not enough to volunteer at a soup kitchen, as good as important as that is. The only solution is to help people realize that they can have a new identity, a new nature in Christ.